1: Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash audio. Visit IXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
2: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Brad
3: Lawrence. Not to mention the fact that, as I mentioned, I'm a fat kid with braces, Coke bottle glasses, and a mullet, which I did not realize was optional. So... <laughs> That and more. But
2: before that, I just wanted to let you know that today's show is brought to you by Harry's. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code R-I-S-K to save $5 off your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and the promo code is RISK. And now a special message from, oddly enough, Quint the shark hunter from the 1975 blockbuster,
4: Jaws. You know, when I take a notion to put a frank in the bun, I head on over to adamandeve.com. Adam and Eve has over 10 million satisfied customers. They got lingerie and lube, of course. And all them succulent adult toys. They got the pizza beaver. The Kenny Bunkport surprise. And the fountain of you. They got the hot toboggan. The teensy Greek. And the Joyce Carol Oats. They got the bald dolphin. The Nicaraguan peach picker. And... Condoms, of course, obviously, they've got condoms. And right now you get ten free gifts with any order when you use our offer code R-I-S-K. You get a sexy surprise for her, an adventurous toy for him, a gift you'll both enjoy, and six free full-length adult DVDs plus free shipping. That's ten free gifts when you use our offer code R-I-S-K. So what are you waiting for? When you're ready to slide down the meat banister and dance the chocolate cha-cha, head on over to adamandeve.com.
2: Ah, so nice to be hearing from him. And so inexplicable to be hearing from him. And now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Mr. Frisbee's Beat Pocket behind me now. You know you love it when we break out the Mr. Frisbee. My friends, we are calling today's episode, which is the first episode of uh, the fall of 2015, It's Complicated. These are three stories where the storytellers thought they were in such-and-such a circumstance at first, and then
4: shit got real.
2: (laughs) And we've got three favorite storytellers of ours from over the years, people that we know we can trust to tell a good story. We're going to start with one of the most important people on our team, Michelle Walson, who helped me start this podcast in 2009, and now she helps the storytellers who tell their stories at the New York live shows work on their stories beforehand. She is just so talented. She brings such a sharp mind and a compassionate heart to the work that she does with people on their stories. It's always inspiring to me. Now, this story originally premiered in a different form on an entirely different storytelling podcast that you should really know about. Modern Stories Mix is a new storytelling podcast created by our friend, Julie Threlkeld, who's been on Risk several times. She puts so much care and love into the preparation of the stories for her podcast. Definitely check out Modern Stories Mix, and you can hear the radio style version of this same story. But here is Michelle Walson now at the Risk Live Show in New York City with a story we call It Gets Better.
5: Hello. All right. So I got pregnant for the first time a year and a half ago at the age of 36. And in my friend group, that's kind of just a little bit older than average. But when I started going to my OB appointments, I learned that because I was over the age of 35, I was in an age bracket called advanced maternal age and my pregnancy was actually considered this is the real term no joke a geriatric pregnancy <laughs> and so then i didn't feel so great hearing that and then my husband jeff and i we went to you know doctor appointment after a doctor appointment and in the beginning all they do is warn you about everything that can go wrong so Every single appointment, it's just like, they tell you about the risks of miscarriage and chromosomal abnormalities and basically just the overall high likelihood that you're going to give birth to a baby who looks like sloth from the Goonies, you remember that guy? And so during this time period, I made a promise to myself to avoid all medical googling so that I would not freak out about things that probably would not happen. And so I didn't. I didn't Google anything, and I didn't obsess, and on July 8th of 2014, I gave birth to a very healthy baby boy. Thank you, thank you. So he was amazing, we named him James after my husband's father, and we brought him home, and he had dark hair and dark blue eyes, and he always made his mouth into this little O shape, so that it looked like everything he was looking at was the best thing he had ever seen, because it probably was, he was like a day old, (laughs) so he would just be like, ooh, that ceiling, it's amazing, and we were just in love with him. And then kind of the reality of having a newborn set in. James, by all accounts, was a really good baby. He wasn't colicky or anything like that. But even under the best of circumstances, it was really hard taking care of him. And my husband and I were just kind of cracking under the pressure of keeping up with his needs. So I was trying to breastfeed him. And I don't know if you know this, but newborns have to eat every two hours, which is just like a a terrible plan (laughs) like and if you're breastfeeding you have to be physically present every two hours for those feedings so I was doing that and I was just exhausted and having a hard time keeping up and when he wasn't eating he would sleep but he would only sleep if one of us was holding him and we couldn't sleep while we were holding him because you might drop him and that's bad um (laughs) So that was not a sustainable situation at all either. And the way we tried to cope was by kind of dividing the work into shifts. So we would take these two hour shifts, my husband and I, and we became kind of like factory workers, like passing in the night, bleary eyed. And it was just the same routine over and over again. It was. Feed, burp, change, swaddle, rock, rinse, repeat. And it was just over and over again every two hours and trying to sleep in little chunks in between. It's just hellish. It's like no way to live. If you haven't had kids, don't do it. Um, And uh, during this time, everybody's visiting us and everybody says the same thing. They all say it gets better. So it's, like a, it's just like a big damn savage PSA every single day. It's, it gets better, it gets better. Our friends, our family, the pediatrician, the guy at the deli. And one day my husband just says, oh my God, if I hear one more person say it gets better, I'm going to scream. When does it get better? And I said, well, my mom said she thinks it's around like three months that it starts to get better. And he said, that is way too long. And I agreed because like, three months doesn't sound like a long time to you maybe, but when you're trying to get through the day in these two hours sleep de- deprived haze, it feels like an eternity. And so that was the mindset I was in one night when I was, uh, had finished feeding James and I noticed that my left breast really hurt and there was kind of this like red area and it was a little bit um, swollen and hard And I thought it was a blocked duct, which if you're not familiar with breastfeeding, it's something that can happen where uh, the milk doesn't come out all the way and it kind of swells up and it's painful. And I talked to my cousin who had a bunch of kids and she said, oh yeah, that sounds like a blocked duct. Just put a warm compress on it and it should get better. So I tried it it for about a week and it didn't get better. And then uh, I went to the OB and she said, well, it might be mastitis, which is this type of infection you can get when you're breastfeeding. And it's usually accompanied by these horrible flu-like symptoms where you have a fever and chills and I didn't have any of that. But she said, well, I'll I'll give you an antibiotic anyway and it should get better. So she gives me the antibiotic and it doesn't get better, it's actually getting worse. It's it's redder and, and more painful, more swollen. I go back and she gives me another antibiotic and she's like, well, this one should work, it should get better. And I'm like, Jesus, that's like another thing I'm waiting for to get better that's never getting better. And that antibiotic doesn't do the trick. And then she sends me to get some imaging done. So ordinarily in my normal life, I wouldn't look forward to an ultrasound and a mammogram. But I was so exhausted with taking care of the baby that the thought of kind of leaving our apartment for the afternoon and like taking a cab into the city and and being by myself, um, free from childcare duties, just felt almost like a vacation. And so I I got into the cab and it was this beautiful um, day in August and. And the cab ride over, I'm going over the Manhattan Bridge and up through the Lower East Side, through the East Village where we used to live before we had kids. And I'm just passing all the places that my husband Jeff and I used to hang out. So we go by the Bowery Ballroom and I remember the great New Year's Eve we spent there watching Patti Smith perform. And we pass B Bar, which was the place we used to go for brunch all the time at 2 p.m. after sleeping until 1. And we passed St. Mark's Bookstore, where we used to go and look at all the books that the store clerks had you know, well curated and recommended, and then we would go home and guiltily buy them on our Kindles and read late into the night. <laughs> and all of these very simple pleasures, like seeing a concert, going to brunch, sleeping in, reading a book, just felt so completely out of reach from my current life situation, and I just missed them so much I felt like I could cry. So then I get to the imaging center in Chelsea, and I go in for my ultrasound, and the tech is you know, putting the wand over the problem area on my breast, and she's just sort of going around and around it and pushing harder and harder. And I'm just studying her face to see if I can you know, get any sense of if there's anything alarming that she's seeing. And she's this really stoic Eastern European woman, and she's given me nothing. And so I, you know, I go through the ultrasound, they send me back to the waiting room, and I sit and I page through my Us Weekly. And then they call me in for the mammogram, and I, I was not prepared for what that was like, because I had never had a mammogram, because I was young, or I thought I was young before all this happened. And, But in the mammogram, uh, you know, they, they smash your breast to the thickness of a pancake between two pieces of glass, and it's extra painful when you already have a sore spot and you're breastfeeding. So that, I, I endure that, and, uh, and then they send me back to the waiting room again. And then finally, it's my turn to see the doctor. And uh, I go down this hallway uh, to the doctor's office, and it's just this little closet-sized room off of the hallway, and the doors open, and she has uh, my ultrasound image and my mammogram image up on her computer screen. And she shows it to me, and she says, well, your OB sent you here, because uh she wanted us to see if you have an abscess which is sort of a, an infection that can be drained and you don't have an abscess i don't see an abscess here you do however have a very large mass in your left breast and my recommendation is that you go see a breast surgeon as soon as possible and get a biopsy and it doesn't really register to me what she's saying so i say okay and she hands me some paperwork and sends me on my way. And I walk down the hallway and I go back through the waiting room. And as I'm walking through the waiting room, I kind of look at the other women in the waiting room for the first time, really. And everybody's sitting there kind of in their normal clothes from the waist down, but in these little, like, lavender hospital kimono tops from the waist up. I look at them and they, they don't look so good. They're, they're, a lot of them are pale, with kind of dark circles under their eyes, with. Some of them have head scarves, and it dawns on me, like holy shit, these people have cancer. And I start to get this panicky feeling and uh, I go back, back through the waiting room, back down the hallway to the doctor again and I just say, oh you know, I, I just had one more question. Um, what am I getting the biopsy for? And she said, well the biopsy would just be to rule out this rare type of breast cancer called inflammatory breast cancer. And I said, okay. And I I go down the hallway, and this time I don't even make it to the waiting room before I panic a lot and head straight back to her office. And at this point, I'm kind of, tears are welling up inside of me, and I just say, "Um, can I just ask you one more question? Um, How likely is it that this is inflammatory breast cancer and not mastitis, the infection? And I really just want this woman, by the way, this woman was uh, well into advanced maternal age herself, and uh, she had kind of shoulder-length gray hair, and she looked kind of like Jane Pauly, the news anchor. And I really wanted her to just get up at that point in time and give me a hug and just say, oh, honey, it's one in a million chance. We just have to cover our bases for insurance purposes. You know how that is, malpractice and everything. But she doesn't do anything like that. She just very uh, kind of in that news anchor way, just says, I can't speak to that. Only the breast surgeon can tell you that. And I just stand there and tears are like coming out of my face against my will at this point. And, And I think she can tell that I need something else from her. And so she says one more thing, which is I can tell you that mastitis is extremely common and inflammatory breast cancer is extremely rare. And that just becomes my mantra over the next day. I tell it to anyone who will listen. I tell it to my husband on the phone. I tell it to my mom. I tell it to the cab driver on the way home. I'm like, mastitis is extremely common. (laughs) Inflammatory breast cancer is extremely rare. Mastitis is so common. And I just keep repeating that to myself. And that gets me through the afternoon and the evening until it's the middle of the night again and I'm up feeding my son and I just put him down to sleep. And it's my turn to kind of catch a little sleep, but I can't sleep because I just start thinking, like, what if I'm the rare one? And then I think, this is stupid, you know, I just, I think I just need to play out the worst case scenario so that I can relax and get some sleep. And so I think, okay, worst case scenario, I have breast cancer. Breast cancer is like one of the most treatable cancers, I think, you know, and you hear about that all the time, people beating breast cancer. I'm just going to break this like no medical Googling thing and Google inflammatory breast cancer and, and put my mind at rest. So I Google it and this is around like four in the morning and I read inflammatory breast cancer is a rare and aggressive form of breast cancer that starts with the reddening and swelling of the breast and spreads quickly with symptoms worsening within days or even hours. The prognosis is not as good as it is for most other types of breast cancer with a median survival rate of 21 months. And yeah, that's that's how I felt. I just, I felt like I got sucker punched in the gut. And I just thought, oh my God, 21 months. My son won't even be two years old. And before this three month period that was supposed to be the time in which things needed to get better felt like an eternity and now when I was faced with the idea of not having an eternity it felt like a nanosecond and instead of wishing it to go faster I just wanted to hang on to every moment and before I know it I'm just sobbing and my husband wakes up at the noise and he's like what's the matter is the baby okay what happened and I said, yes, the baby's okay, but I'm gonna die. I don't wanna die, I don't wanna die. I wanna be James's mom, I don't wanna die. And he's like, what are you talking about? What, what happened? And I was like, I Googled inflammatory breast cancer. He's like, what are you doing that for? What happened? Mastitis is extremely common. (laughs) Inflammatory breast cancer is extremely rare. Mastitis is very, very common. And he just keeps repeating that to me over and over again. And we're up half the night. And it's the first time since we had the baby that we're up, not because the baby's crying, but because I'm crying like a baby. I wake up in the morning and I'm just exhausted and drained and I I'm, I'm just feel numb as the breast surgeon takes this large needle and inserts it into my breast and extracts um, what looks like a mixture of milk and pus and blood. And she leaves the room with this and feels like she's gone for a very long time. And when she finally comes back, she says, okay, we're sending the material to the lab to culture the bacteria. And we're going to see if there's a, an antibiotic that it will respond to better. And I don't really understand what she's telling me. And I say, oh, so there is some infection? And she said, yeah, there's an infection. And I said, oh, so th- is there cancer, though, too? And she said, no, there's not cancer. It's, it's just mastitis. Very stubborn case of mastitis. It's very common. <laughs> and I say, yeah, I heard. And, and, uh, and I'm just so relieved. I'm just on cloud nine. I leave the office and I get a cab to go back to Brooklyn. And this time on the cab ride back, I'm not at all looking at all our old places that we used to frequent. I'm just really excited to get back to my husband and my son. And that night we celebrate kind of new parent style. We order pizza, we each eat a pint of ice cream while James is kind of sitting in this vibrating bouncy chair and making funny faces. And when it comes to bedtime, we dress him up in these PJs that say yay all over them. At this point he's five weeks old and he's just started to smile a little bit and it's really exciting. And we put him in the crib, we take out our phones and we sort of hover over him and wait for him to do something cute so that we can get a picture. And as we're watching him, he kind of starts flailing about and babies that age, like they don't, their hands are perpetually in a fist. They never take their hands out of a fist. And he kind of is moving around in this way that it looks like he's like fist pumping the air with excitement. And we quick snap a picture to capture the moment. And, uh, <laughs> and and so, when I look at that picture now, that, that picture to me, that moment marks the time when there was a shift for me, where I stopped looking at my current life situation through what, everything that I was missing, And I just started thinking about all the things we had to look forward to as a family of three. And that was when things started to get better. Thank you.
1: Michelle Wilson. Oh my God. Is everyone like feeling your tits and like checking your tits right now? Like let's just take a second and fucking check our tits. Oh my God. I was like standing backstage being like, Ooh, ah,
0: <laughs> The first few years after I graduated from college were pretty rough. I was always on the hunt for a job professionally and money was always an issue. I went to school for education. I only found a part-time job in that field, which if you can imagine did not actually pay the bills. So I found myself waiting tables full time. And it was hard to not take it personally. It was wearing on my self-esteem, not finding something in that field. I felt like I needed a friend, somebody that I could confide in without judgment and vice versa. And that's when I met Megan. I think our first verbal exchange with each other, we worked at a restaurant together and I walked up to, I saw her punching in an order and I walk up and I said, oh my God, your hair is so shiny. May I touch it? And she turned to me and she said in this exact voice, she said, yes, you may, but please be careful. (laughs) It's a wig and it's very cheap. It's my Posh Spice. Now, from that moment on, we were inseparable because she had me at Posh Spice. I'm a massive Spice Girls fan. We found out pretty quickly that we were really great together as friends, as drinking buddies. Um, We both loved terrible, disgusting bar food. Like anything that was deep fried, that was it for us. But we would only permit ourselves to have it on special occasions. Like if we were celebrating something or if it was an emotional emergency, if we need some kind of pick me up, we would let ourselves eat this stuff. The other way that we were perfect friends and drinking buddies was I would always drink Captain and Coke at the time. And I would always inevitably, somebody would buy me a drink and they would accidentally pour me a Jack and Coke. And I hated the taste of it, but I had kind of gotten used to that mistake happening a lot. And she had the opposite problem. She was the Jack and Coke girl, and she would always accidentally get poured a Captain and Coke. And she said, oh, my God, Dave, we're soulmates. Do you realize this? Like, we should just go out together and drink forever. And then whenever we get the wrong ones, just switch. And I thought to myself, like, I don't know about drinking together forever. That sounds a little bleak, but the switching logic was spot on. I like that. Now, not to date the story too much, but I had this kick-ass BlackBerry at the time. And people were just like, oh my god, an internet inside a phone? What's next, TV on a computer? It had this awesome feature in the BlackBerry that you could, if you had somebody connected in your phone that was also your MySpace friend, you would get a text notification at midnight going into their birthday. So you would look like the coolest, most attentive friend who would always remember everybody's birthday and you're the first one to send them a text. And Megan was always the first person to laugh at me at midnight, feeling all important, checking my email and whatever at the bar. And it was great. Now, when she started there, people had been particularly mean to her at the restaurant and I could not figure out why. We had a weird mix of people working there at the time. Like at the end of the day, we could call each other out on shit and it was fine. But we had Tammy, the middle-aged mom to everybody, this awesomely white trash lady with a drinking problem. But she was great. We had Bob. He was like the biggest hippie I've ever met in my life. I think his body could actually absorb LSD as if it was vitamin C. It was just this strange mix of people, and we all had our faults, but at the end of the day, we could be honest with each other. And at one point, I said, hey, assholes, like, what, what's our community problem with the new girl? Because, like, she seems really nice to me, and you guys are being really terrible to her. Somebody said, yeah, she's, like, a drug addict in high school, and she was in jail and stuff, and she used to rob houses, and I'm like, yeah, but she's really nice now, so... I don't get why, I mean like you guys are all alcoholics with terrible attitude problems and we all get along well, why can't we just sort of invite her on board? Now I'm trying to not judge people by their pasts as much as try to let them show what kind of person they are in the present. And I can often come across as a sour person a lot of times but I was trying really hard at this point in my life to be positive. I remember Megan, we went out after work one night pretty early on, and we were bonding over fried foods. We downed this gigantic plate of onion rings and mac and cheese wedges and french fries and everything, and she told me her whole story. She got mixed up in this terrible relationship with this guy when she was in high school, and his parents ran a meth lab, and he gets her hooked on drugs. Uh, He has her robbing houses, all this terrible stuff i could not give her enough credit for being able to tuck her tail between her legs move back in with her mom and try to make a better life for her son i thought it was so amazing and she couldn't give me enough credit for having met posh spice in new york the year earlier we all have those moments that define us megan's mom had a lot of patience and a lot of love inside of her and it was evident in the way that she was able to take her daughter in when she was having such a rough time And I think she must have had a sixth sense at this point in her life of seeing so many people come in contact with her daughter and either help her get on the right track or harm her and get her on the wrong track. And I think she sensed early on that I was one of the good ones. And anytime she had the opportunity, she would pull me aside and say, you're being a really good friend to her. and I want you to know how much I appreciate that. And whether she says this or not, she really needs people like you doing things like this. So a few years later, Megan gained sole custody of her son. But because of the laws of things like that, she had to move back to the state where the child was born. And it was an obvious struggle for her right away. She was leaving her friends and her family and everything she knew. And I remember at this time, she was writing me. She was calling me all the time and she was very vocal about how lonely she was. She said she was just a stranger in this town. She didn't know anybody. She knew she was doing the right thing for her son, but she could recognize right away that she was sacrificing so much of herself to do it, that it was breaking her heart. and It was breaking my heart too. I remember telling her at the time constantly, I said, look at what you have done so far. Look at how far you have come personally. I said, Megan, it sounds so trite. It sounds so cliche, but look at how far you've come. You are destined for greatness. Look at everything you've accomplished. And she was able to do it to a certain degree. She had built this brand new life up there. She had gained sole custody of her son. Eventually she finds this amazing house. She lands this awesome job where she's able to make ends meet. And she meets this guy while she's there. It's this guy from her job. They get along great. They eventually get married and they have this perfect little son Aiden together. So she stopped down in Pittsburgh just after giving birth to her baby, it was about, he must have been about a week old, and I was working nights at the restaurant at the time. I remember this one particular night, we were down two servers and it was unexpectedly busy. And I knew she was in town, she said she was going to stop in, but I'm running around like a crazy person. If you had asked me my name at that point, I don't know that I would have been able to answer you she and her mother had already been in there they had already eaten they had already had dessert they were on their way out and i almost missed her but i was rushing past the front foyer and i've got this giant plate of food and drinks everything it's about to topple over and then i hear dave dave and i put everything down i almost started crying i was like oh my god Oh, God, it's Megan. Oh, my God. And she's got this beautiful, tiny little son. And her smile was so genuine. And it just, after seeing her on the way back up, this upswing in life, it was everything to see her smiling. And I look at her mom, and she says, Hi, Dave. And the smile seemed permanent at this point. I feel like probably at this point in her life, all those little thank yous that she would say to kind people that are helping Megan, I feel like she was probably passing out a lot more of those these days. So at this point in my life, I had a very specific routine. I would wake up super early in the morning and I would go and work with my first graders until noon. And then I would rush back home and I would try my best to sleep for three hours on the couch. And then I would set my alarm, I'd wake up at 3 p.m., I'd chug some coffee and I'd rush, rush, rush out the door. I'd have to walk like three blocks to catch a bus take that down to the restaurant, and then I would work there all night long, come home super late, and start it all over again the next day. So this particular day, it was super sunny. I don't know why that sticks out. I went to work at the school. I come home, I pass out on the couch, I have to close all of the blinds. I have to close all of the curtains. It's so sunny this day that I have to have the room completely pitch black. My alarm goes off at three o'clock, and I look at my phone. It's from a number that I didn't recognize, and I'm all hazy, I'm wiping my eyes, I don't know what's going on quite yet. And the text says, hi Dave, it's Megan's mom. Meg had an accident last night, and we lost her. (laughs) Megan was killed in a car accident coming home from work, and I'm blindsided with this horrible mixture of pain and sadness and anger that I, I didn't know could exist in this combination before. I'm sure everybody listening has seen that crazy person on the street who is obviously going through something, but for whatever reason, you can't stop and help them. You say to yourself, we can't save everybody. They might be dangerous. I don't know. But I was that crazy person that day. I couldn't stop and realize I need to process this. I was just that internal body clock is telling me i need to go to work i'll process this eventually and i cried the entire way to the bus stop and then the bus ride is about 25 minutes and i cried the entire way to work and i got off the bus and i said i need to get this together and so i dry my face off and i walk a few blocks over to go to the restaurant and like the most jovial sweet manager is up front and he's like hey david did you get some sun today i was like no, I, I didn't. I didn't. I'm trying not to be dramatic or anything. And he says, what? Come on. Did you run here or something? You're like super red, dude. What the hell's going on? And I go, can we talk um, in private for a second? He's like, oh, you've been crying something wrong. I was like, we'll talk in private. So I go and I tell him what had happened and he, oh my God, Dave. Oh my God. That's your girl. Oh my God. I am so sorry. Go home. Just go home. And I, Realized that I needed to stay there for the night. I needed something menial, something small to keep me busy, to keep my mind off of it. And it actually helped being there that night. Going to Megan's funeral was still to this day probably the most difficult emotional thing I've ever been through. I think there's something so much sadder about a young person's funeral than an older person's funeral. I have the staunch belief that humans are not equipped emotionally to bury their young. And that day in particular, I know that whenever you go to a funeral, the person who is grieving the most, who is hosting this whole thing, you've got to really keep it together in front of them. And I walked up and I saw Megan's mom and she gave me the biggest hug. And she said, God, she loved you so much. You're such a good friend to her. She's like, I'm so glad you're here. I looked at Megan and she looked so beautiful but she had these telltale signs of the head injury that killed her she had these bruises on her face but she still looked so beautiful and she looked finally at some kind of rest i'm talking to megan's mom and she leans in and hugs me and then megan's five-year-old son comes up and says "'Grammy, can I put some more flowers in Mommy's box?' And he's holding a rose, and I lose my mind. I I had to get out of there. I decided I couldn't stay for the service. I was crying too hard, and I had to get out of there. So I went to KFC, and I had the Double Down Sandwich, which is the one where instead of having two pieces of bread holding it together, how sandwiches are, it's held together by two fried chicken breasts." Megan would have totally approved of that meal choice, given the circumstances. It was an emotional emergency, and I needed a pick-me-up. One night, several months later, I was coming off of the shift from hell at the restaurant. I was exhausted and I was miserable and I was sweaty and a friend of mine, I was going to be meeting him for drinks. I was rushing to get out of there. I was already sweaty from the shift itself, but my bus was late and then it was taking forever to get there and I get off the bus, I have to run three blocks to get over there. I'm 30 or 40 minutes late to meet up with my friend. I go, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's been a really terrible day. And he goes, no, calm down, Dave, you're fine, you're fine. I got you a drink. And so I go to take a sip of my drink, my Captain and Coke. And it was not a Captain and Coke. He had accidentally ordered me a Jack and Coke. The shock of the wrong liquor in your mouth, it was like when you're a little kid and you go to take a sip of soda and it's flat. Just that strange feeling in your mouth. And then set that feeling on fire with the memory of somebody who has made you happier than you could have ever been and then wash that feeling down in that same millisecond with the idea that you're never going to see them ever again and I tried so hard I'm at the gay bar and I'm trying to not be dramatic so I make a face and I try to not make a face and my friend calls me out on it he's like what what's wrong and I just blame it on it being the wrong drink and he says no come on tell me what it is I'll get you another one but what it seems more than that and I said no it's fine everything's fine And I said, I'll drink it, I don't want another one. And my phone vibrates and I pull it out of my pocket, seeing who is texting me in this dramatic moment. And nobody is texting me. It's my Blackberry informing me via MySpace that it's Megan's birthday. And I lose my mind. I can't explode the way I need to in front of everybody. I feel like that would be social suicide. So I politely excuse myself and I walked outside that explosion of tears came out and I walked to KFC and I had my second and final double-down sandwich. (laughs) Looking back on the day that I met Megan, I'm so glad that I took that very rare-for-me opportunity to choose love rather than making her the butt of a joke, which I feel like would have been very easy for me to do the way everybody else was doing. Turns out, I was going through this emotional struggle, feeling so unsure about myself and feeling I really needed a friend. And it turns out her struggle was so much worse than mine. She really needed it a lot more than I did. And I'm so glad that we were able to be there for each other.
2: This is Risk. This is Tracy Chapman, of course, behind me now. I think that there's no song that I associate more with crying than this one. I saw the movie Stand By Me when I was a kid. It must have been about 14 times, I think. I was so in love with River Phoenix and with Will Wheaton, who has to do this show, goddammit. If you're a fan of Will, tweet to him and tell him to do this damn show. Uh, He says he is not worthy. (laughs) Everyone's worthy of doing Risk. After Michelle Walson's story, we heard from Risk producer J.C. Cassis. Talking about her tits, but nothing new there. And that lovely story we just heard was from the wonderful... David Montgomery. David has his own podcast, Two Gays, No Girls, at a Pizza Place. Uh, We did it. I I mean, I did the podcast, and uh, I made sure we had vegan pizza for it, and it was terrible. turns out, if you're going to have pizza and be a vegan, just cheat.
4: Just make it a cheat day.
2: And right now is the time I am supposed to tell you that today's episode is brought to you by Harry's at Harry's.com. Listen, guys, do yourself a huge favor and get on over there to H.A.R.R.Y.S. dot com and save five dollars off your first purchase with the promo code RISK. Harry's uses only the finest crafted German-engineered blades to give you the smoothest shave you will ever have had. I've used it, and I swear to God, it makes me feel baby smooth. And this is all at a fraction of the cost of what you would be paying if you went to the pharmacy to get your blades. Harry's ships to you for free. You get this starter kit with a beautiful chrome razor, three blades this beautifully luxurious feeling shave cream, you could be spending about $35 for all of this, but you'll only be spending $15 on this starter kit. Remember, you're going to be saving $5 when you're using the promo code RISK. So again, it's dot com. free shipping. You're going to save $5 when you use the promo code RISK. And take it from me, you really will be amazed at what a great smooth shave you're getting for so much less
4: than what you'd be paying
2: at the store with Harry's.com. Our final story today comes to us from Brad Lawrence. Brad was on one of the very, very first episodes of Risk, he is a, a host of burlesque shows around town. He just had a piece in McSweeney's. He's done the Moth main stage. You can find him on Twitter at BradLaw77. Here he is at the Risk Live show in New York City just a couple weeks ago with the story we call Jeff.
6: Whenever you're in trouble, you just stand. By me, oh stand by me, oh stand, stand by me, stand by me, oh darling, darling. Stand by me, stand by me, stand by me.
3: I was 14 years old and I had just returned from this national competition. It was an arts competition run by my church, The summers of God. And in this arts competition, I had just taken second place in the visual arts category. It had been held in Indianapolis, Indiana, and the award for second place was a $500 scholarship to Evangel University in Springfield, Missouri, a university run by my church, the Assemblies of God, and accredited by Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) But so the point is, I'm I'm 14, I am uh, fat, I have braces, Coke bottle glasses, and a mullet, and I'm a winner. That's what you need to know. I'm on top of the world. And, um, and we get home from this trip to find my stepbrother, Jeff, on our doorstep. Not literally on our doorstep, my stepbrother had let him into the house, which later would be considered the first mistake. At some point, I was informed that Jeff was going to stay with us for a while, which was information I absorbed and then immediately uh, stopped caring about because Jeff was about 35, I was 14, and our lives had nothing in common whatsoever. And I, you know, I just didn't care. I mean, it was just it just didn't affect me. So I was like, oh, okay, whatever, and uh, I went about you know, doing 14-year-old things. Mostly which involved my church youth group and that kind of stuff, and kind of generally ignoring Jeff's presence, at least for the first couple of weeks. But even so, I was still, I would occasionally sort of happen by the kitchen uh, where my mom and my stepdaughter would be having these sort of hushed conversations about the Jeff situation. And the key words in any discussion of the Jeff situation were words like divorce and unemployed and the drug problem. (laughs) Jeff was not my problem, until Jeff became my problem. And how Jeff became my problem was that whatever his grand plan had been to get his life in order by coming to stay with us, it had quickly devolved into permanently occupying the Lazy Boy in front of the television set. And when you are permanently occupying the lazy boy in front of the television set, that means you never have to relinquish control of the remote. All right, so this guy, he's always at the remote and he's in control of what happens on the TV and he is on the cutting edge of the soon to be methamphetamine epidemic. So he's on speed and controlling the television, which means he's just sort of flipping through channels one after the other and like not settling on anything. You're sort of like zipping past good shows, shows I want to watch, the A-Team. You know, manimal is on somewhere and like, you know, like Buck Rogers reruns, like any of these things would be fine, but instead like flipping past these things and, and landing for slightly longer periods of time on things I don't want to watch and don't care about, like monster truck rallies and professional wrestling and like and like football sporting things, which I don't care about because I'm a fat kid and I don't care about these things. But he'd sort of like land on these things for like a little bit longer and then he'd want to have a conversation with me about them. And he'd so he'd like he'd be on the football game for like 30 seconds and then he would go, so we they those Steelers and like, well, flipping channels again. And I, like, he was on the football for, like, 30 seconds. I saw one stealer. <laughs> I don't know how to evaluate that or have an opinion, you know? So I'm just kind of like, what? I don't, the guy he's awkward and he's strange because he's a drug addict. And, like, you know, and they're awkward and strange. And I, like, I don't want I don't to deal with him. And I don't want to deal with him. And I don't want to deal with the TV conversations or, like, the constant flipping of channels. And I just want to get away from the situation. So I basically, I just, I stopped watching TV which solves the problem of the the television conversations, but does not necessarily solve the problems of all the other conversations that Jeff tries to instigate with me. And mainly these come up, I'll come home from school and I'll walk in the front door and more days than not, when I walk in the front door, I am greeted by Jeff, the same conversation starter, the same question, which is, hey, did you get any? where am I coming from? (laughs) I'm coming from school. I'm not coming from a Coke orgy. I'm coming from, like, the ninth grade. And I am 14 years old, and me and, like, most of the people I know at my school, like, we have a very dim understanding of what I would be getting any of in the first place. Not to mention the fact that, as I mentioned, I'm a fat kid with braces, Coke bottle glasses, and a mullet, which I had not realized was optional. So... (laughs) No one is lining up to give me any of anything. (laughs) And beyond that, I am being raised evangelical Christian, which means that I'm not supposed to be trying to get any of anything until I have passed into the holy bonds of matrimony as blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ with another virgin like myself. (laughs) And I don't want to have this conversation. You know, I don't have a conversation about how, you know, I'm not. Lined up for any of what I'm not supposed to want in the first place, but secretly do want because I'm 14, even though I don't actually know what it is. Like, I, like this is all too complicated for me to suss out with this guy who I oftentimes find in the lazy boy in his tidy whiteies, <laughs> this pasty weirdo. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it, <sighs> and so I don't know how to respond to him when he says this, and so I don't. And he takes my silence for that maybe he's not asking the question with enough aggression. (laughs) And so he starts to ratchet it up. And how he does this is he says, hey, are you getting any? And that moves up to, are you getting any of that pussy? And that eventually moves up to, let me smell your fingers. (laughs) And by the time it gets to that, we're about two or three months in, and I have begun to hate Jeff. (laughs) I just despise the guy. I can't stand having him in the house. You know, it's a constant distraction, and it's just gross. He's gross, and I want him to go away. (laughs) Permanently, I don't care where, just out of my life and out of my house. And Jeff, meanwhile, Jeff's life is falling apart. Um, (laughs) The divorce in question, would take him away from his three kids, uh, the youngest of which was like barely more than a year old. The unemployment thing—I mean, you know, a lot of Missouri was unemployed at the time. But the whole thing of misery loves company is—it you know it doesn't solve misery; it just kind of spreads it around. And I don't know. I guess the uh, probably living with his parents at the age of thirty-five wasn't doing a lot for his self-esteem. And one imagines that, that the drug—the drug, the drug problem—probably seemed like. A solution to all of the other problems, you know? Who knows? But regardless, I don't care. Because I hate the guy, and I want him to go away, and it's all I can think about. And then one day, Jeff gives me the leverage I need to make this happen. At some point, my youth minister, Augustus King, he announces that the uh, youth group making a trip down to Evangel University, the place that I have a $500 scholarship for, the place that will birth my genius as the next great Christian artist (laughs) unto the world (laughs) that is awaiting its arrival. And the youth group's gonna go down there and take a tour of Evangel's campus. And anyone who wants to go, all they have to do is sign up. And I, I of course, sign up immediately. I can't wait to get down there and and see this hallowed institution. Then the Friday before we're supposed to leave on this trip, I walk in the front door, no questions are asked. Uh, Jeff is there, I can see him in the kitchen, sort of hunched over something. And I, you know, I, I, I want to avoid the guy, but I also want a drink of water. And I think, you know, maybe I can just get in there, get a glass of water, and if I don't say anything, just get out and not have to deal with the guy. So I go up there and I skirt past him, and I get to the sink, and I'm filling the glass of water. When I hear from behind me, hey, what do you think of that? And I turn around, to find Jeff holding up a porn magazine. And he has it open to the centerfold and he's sort of shoving it at me like this. He's up out of his seat and he's like coming towards me with this porn magazine. This is not a Playboy or a penthouse. There's nothing soft focus or Vaseline lens about this. This was shot at three o'clock in the afternoon in like a motel in Tijuana and like this, this this girl with dilated pupils is like gripping her labia and giving you like an excellent view of her internal organs and like the light from her nostrils, you know? That's what this is, and he's shoving this at me and he's like, what do you think of that? And I'm like, what do I think of this? What do I think of my homeless, drug-addled stepbrother looking at porn at 3 o'clock at the kitchen table? I like, what am I supposed to think of that, you know? And it's like, and also, like, I, 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 what I've been taught to think about this is I've been taught that the demon lust will lead you to hell, you will masturbate your way to the fiery pit, and will be more humiliating for your friends and family than that, and like, what I'm supposed to do is, like, drop to my knees and pray for salvation immediately. Like, that's what I've been taught to do. I don't do that. I just stare at him, and and I, and I, 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 I he keeps shoving it at me, like, keeps demanding an opinion, an opinion that I cannot formulate, because my brain has just seized up, and i I'm paralyzed while he's shoving this thing at me. Like, what do you think of that? Are and I'm just like, I, I just want to run away from the guy. Like, immediately I just want to get away from him. And finally, I break my paralysis and I get around him and I just, start just leave the kitchen. And just like while he's like still shoving this thing at me, I just get around and like, I'm leaving the kitchen. I'm going down the hall towards my bedroom. And as I'm going, I hear him call it behind me. What's the matter? You don't like girls? And I go to my bedroom and I close the door and I lock it. I sit down on my bed and I formulate a plan and my plan is this when my mother my evangelical Christian mother whose single greatest concern in this life is delivering my soul untainted by temptation or the demon lust under the loving arms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when that woman gets home I am going to rat Jeff out. (laughs) And I do. And the next morning, I leave the Tor Evangel's campus. And what I'm hoping will happen while I'm gone is that my mother will having, you know, wanting nothing in the house to tempt me away from the path of righteousness, that she will Eject Jeff from the house and I will return home with a clear vision of my future as the next great Christian artist And I will return to a home free Of Jeff And the next day there is a problem uh, Because Evangel Spine art program Kind of consisted of a double wide trailer kind of like shoved to the side of the campus behind the gymnasium You really had to look for it And then you found it and you went inside, it was basically full of bleached deer skulls and previous students drawings of said bleached deer skulls and that was the end of uh, Evangel's fine art program, like that was it. And this was not what I had envisioned. You know, I had envisioned like greater things for my prodigious talent, and I was very disappointed actually. And I, and I, and I now I was like, you know, I really didn't want to go to Evangel if this was going to be it. You know what I mean? Egotistically, I, I sort of, I, you know, I thought better of myself and my talent, and I wanted to go somewhere that reflected that. You know, and this was not. It just wasn't good enough, and I was dreading. Having that conversation with my mother had been so proud of me for winning the scholarship and the idea that I would go to evangel a Christian college But as the church van pulls into the church parking lot I see that I am in for a, at least a temporary reprieve because it's not my mother who has come to pick me up at the church parking lot It is actually my sister Amy Amy's there and then the pastor of the church pastor Bornman comes over and he tells me uh, Brad your sister needs to talk to you right away and it's urgent And so I go over to where Amy's standing, looking very serious, and it's there on the side of the parking lot, away from the other kids. This is where Amy informs me that while I was gone, uh, Jeff had taken his own life. On the side of the road with a shotgun, shortly after my parents had kicked him out of the house. I don't remember saying goodbye to any of the kids that day. I don't think they were in earshot. I don't think they heard what was going on. I think Amy and I just left. And I don't remember a lot of what happened after that. I have sketchy memories of the funeral. One thing I do remember was Jeff's oldest daughter, who was only a couple of years younger than me. I remember her anger, and I don't know that that anger was directed at me, but I remember her eyes, and I remember this feeling that her eyes could see straight through me, that they could see my heart, the place where my faith was supposed to live, a faith that was supposed to be based in compassion and forgiveness. And I don't think she found any there because I hadn't found any there. Thank you.
2: That's all for this week's episode, folks. This is nothing but thieves behind me now. And listen, we have just thrown so much. Well, not thrown. We've uploaded. I don't know what we've done, but we've put a lot of new stuff in our shop. We've got a lot of like new T-shirts, new mugs, new iPhone carrying case thingies. They're all there. If you just go to risk-show.com shop and oh, also so many episodes that have been remastered and had the ads removed from the first couple seasons, as well as the all-star episodes, you got to check out the risk shop on our website now. In fact, I am looking at the site right now, and I'm looking at the live shows section. It says that we are in Portland on September 22nd and 23rd. We are in New York and Los Angeles on the 24th. We are in Seattle on the 24th and 25th. Then we're in Toronto on October 9th. Now we're still taking pitches for Toronto. The theme that night is God damn. And then on October 14th, we're in Denver. The theme that night is help Atlanta. Atlanta is November 6th. The theme that night is nasty and Milwaukee is November 14th. The theme that night is fuck this Guys, For all of those shows, we're taking pitches. Pitch me at Kevin at Risk Show.com. Other than that, folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
0: I can't explode the way I need to in the gay bar. So, like... <laughs> oh, buddy. That's okay.
6: <laughs>